So the general principle of dependent origination. The general principle is ta. This, that conditionality, and that could be explained if this arises dependent on that, then if that doesn't occur, this doesn't occur. So it's basically a statement of necessary conditions. You find it elaborated a bit more in some of the suttas, but that's basically what it's talking about. <clears throat> so I want to share with you a sutta from the Middle Length Discourses. This is number 38. It's the Greater Discourse on the Destruction of Craving. This sutta is actually two discourses jammed together. We find this a fair amount in the long and the middle length discourses. Um, two topics on the similar subjects are jammed together to make a longer sutta, or two suttas given to the same person are jammed together to make a longer sutta. Uh, remember, all of this was stored not on paper or anything, but in people's minds. It was memorized. And this went on for about 350 years. And so they long had a tradition of memorizing important spiritual material. And so, yeah, that's what they did with this material. And so this sutta is the greater discourse on the destruction of craving. And it contains two suttas on the destruction of craving. The first of these is on bhava tanha. Bhava is becoming and tanha is craving for craving for becoming. And the second one is kama tanha. Kama is sense pleasures, tanha craving, craving for sense pleasures. And I would say that probably they're from different time periods. Just looking at the elaborate nature of the words that are used, the uh, sophisticatedness of the doctrine, things like that. Probably two suttas put together, but they were not given anywhere near the same time. <clears throat> that first sutta, the one on craving for becoming, actually appears to be an early sutta with a big insertion in the middle of it. The insertion is a catechism a series of question and answers. We find these in some of the suttas. Remember, this is memorized. And so the monks who are learning this learn questions and learn the answers. Um, when I was growing up, my father was a Presbyterian minister and I learned the Presbyterian catechism. What is sin? Any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. I mean, some of it even stuck now. Okay. And so this is Catechism of Dependent Origination. And it appears to be a later insertion. Uh, so what I want to talk mostly about is this first sutta. Now, bhava tanha, craving for becoming. The becoming could be in this life, like I want to become rich and famous, or whatever you want to become. Uh, 
or it could be in a future life. In my next life, I want to become reborn in a family that has a Mercedes Benz, or I want to be reborn as a Deva or whatever. There's also Vibhavatanha. I don't want to be reborn. The Jains were into Vibhavatanha. They were craving to not be reborn. And that's what their spiritual practice was about. The Brahmins, well, they were craving for union with Brahma. And so they wanted to become in union with Brahma. But people have all sorts of ideas about this life and next life becoming. So thus have I heard. Once the Buddha was living at Sabati and Jeta's Grove on a Dependicus Park. Now at that time, there was a monk named Sati, the son of a fisherman, who held a pernicious view that his consciousness transmigrated from one incarnation to the next. Some monks heard about this and they went to Sati and they asked him, is this what you think the Buddha teaches? He says, yes, as I understand the Buddha's teaching, it is this very consciousness which travels from incarnation to incarnation. And the monk said, don't say that, Sati. The Buddha has on many occasions said that consciousness is dependently originated. But though they questioned and cross-questioned Sati, he would not give up his pernicious view. So those monks went to see the Blessed One, saluted, sat down to one side, and they told the Buddha what had transpired with Sati, concluding with, since we could not dissuade him from his pernicious view, we have come to see the Blessed One. So the Buddha said to one of the monks, tell Sati the master calls. And so that monk went and found Sati and said, friend Sati, the master calls you. Very well. So Sati went to see the Buddha, saluted, sat down at one side. The Buddha said, Sati, is it true that you think that I teach that it is this consciousness that transmigrates from incarnation to incarnation? Yes, Venerable Sir, as I understand the teachings of the Blessed One, it is this very consciousness that roams and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. Sati, what is consciousness? Venerable Sir, consciousness is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. So, what do you think? Is that a good definition of consciousness? It's what speaks and feels. Now, feels is Vedna, experiences pleasant, unpleasant sensory input and experiences the karmic resultants, the results of good and bad actions. What do you think? Is that a good definition? The Buddha replies, you foolish man, when have you ever known me to teach Dhamma like that? For on many occasions I have taught that consciousness is dependently originated. But you, foolish man, you misrepresent the doctrine and store up much demerit, you will be known by your pernicious view for a long time. And here we are two and a half thousand years later, and we know about poor Sati because of his pernicious view. The Buddha turns to the monks. Monks, do you understand the Dhamma taught by me 
like this Bhikkhu Sati? No, venerable sir, for on many occasions you have said that consciousness is dependently originated. Good monks, it's good that you understand this. Consciousness is reckoned based on the condition on which it depends. If consciousness arises based on eye and sights, sight consciousness. If it arises based on ear and sounds, ear consciousness. Nose and smells, nose consciousness. Tongue and taste, taste consciousness. Body and textures, body consciousness. Mind and mind objects, mind consciousness. Just as a fire is reckoned by the conditions on which it depends. If a fire is burning in a forest, it's a forest fire. If fire is burning on a house, it's a house fire. If a fire is burning on rubbish, it's a rubbish fire. If it's burning on chaff, it's a chaff fire. If it's burning on cow dung, it's a cow dung fire. In the same way, consciousness is reckoned by the condition on which it depends. So what the Buddha is saying is not only does consciousness depend on Sankara, but it depends on sensory input. You might have heard of the six types of consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, etc. This is a reckoning or a naming of the type of consciousness. It's not really saying there are six separate consciousnesses. It's saying that when you become conscious of something based on your visual input, it's visual consciousness. Now, consciousness, as I said, is divided knowing, but consciousness is, well, it's not a well-defined term in the suttas. There's one sutta in the middle-length discourses where it's used in, I believe it's four different ways in one sutta. There's the six consciousnesses, there's consciousness as the sixth element, you know, the four elements, uh, earth, water, fire, air, there's space, and there's consciousness. There's consciousness in the five aggregates as the fifth aggregates. Sometimes consciousness is used synonymously with mind. In the gradual training, which is the curriculum for the monks and nuns at the time of the Buddha. The best example can be found in Long Discourse number two. Uh, the Buddha says that with the mind jhanically concentrated, one directs and inclines it to knowing and seeing. One understands thus, this is my body, impermanent, etc., and this is my consciousness bound up with it and supported by it. And so their consciousness is being used synonymous with mind. And sometimes we find conscious versus unconscious, right? So there's five different ways. And then we find the literal meaning, divided knowing. So there's six different ways consciousness gets used. But the Buddha is saying that consciousness, no matter which way it's used, arises dependent upon sensory input. This is in addition to consciousness having a, have an object, a sankara. And in other places, it's mentioned that consciousness arises dependent on mind and body. The interaction of mind and body is what produces consciousness. 
here in America, we don't find uh, consciousnesses wandering around without a mind and body associated with it. I understand in England you have more ghosts than we have over here, but uh, I still have my doubts. But so consciousness arises dependent on sensory input. And then the Buddha starts asking the monks questions. Monks, do you understand this has arisen? Now, the, the commentaries go into big detail of trying to figure out what the Buddha means by this. And they decide he pointed to his body and said, do you understand this has arisen? But I think what the Buddha is simply asking, when something arises, do you understand this has arisen? Yes, venerable sir. When this has arisen, do you understand it has arisen dependent on this? Yes, venerable sir. When that thing it depends upon doesn't arise, do you understand that the thing won't arise? Yes, venerable sir. Questions go on like this. It's one of the more tedious passages in the sutta, and that's where this uh, catechism on dependent origination comes in. After some general questions on this, that conditionality, we then get the 12 links of dependent origination in the forward order arising and the reverse order arising and the a recapitulation on arising. Then we get them in the reverse. No, then we get them in forward ceasing and then the recapitulation. So then we get the reverse order arising, the reverse order ceasing, the recapitulation. It's really tedious. It goes on for like five or six pages. Uh, yeah, if you could recite that, you would know dependent origination really well because you would know it forwards and backwards, arising and passing. But then it gets to the whole point. Monks, knowing and seeing it this way, would you run back to the past wondering, was I? Was I not? What was I? Being what? What did I become? No, venerable sir. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, that is in terms of dependent origination, would you run to the future wondering, will I be? Won't I be? What will I be? Being what? What will I become? No, venerable sir. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, in terms of dependent origination, would you be inwardly perplexed about the present, wondering, am I? Am I not? What am I? Where has this being come from? What will happen to it? No, venerable sir. Monks, are you saying this just because I'm your teacher? No, venerable sir. Monks, are you saying this from your own experience? Yes, venerable sir. Good monks, it's good that you know this from your own experience. So the answer to sati is, if you understand dependent origination, you don't wonder, was I in the past? Will I be in the future? What am I now? If you understand dependent origination, you realize that all there are are streams of dependently arising processes interacting. 
Now, that phrase, dreams of dependently arising processes interacting, doesn't occur in the suttas. That's what I made up, trying to describe what I find in the suttas. And you can remember it with Sotapai, streams of dependent arising processes interacting, S-O-D-A-P-I. That's it. That's all there is. I, I heard a talk by Joseph Goldstein one time, and he said, you should not think of yourself as a noun, but as a verb. I thought that was actually really brilliant because, yeah, we're much more a process than a static thing. In fact, we're a collection of processes. You got your digestive process, you got your circulatory process, you got your endocrine process, you got your immune system, which is a whole bunch of processes, right? So we're actually a bunch of processes. And then I started realizing, you know, there actually aren't any nouns. It's just that some verbs move kind of slow. Right? I mean, yeah, it's a cell phone, but actually it's a bunch of silicon and glass and plastic and metal cell phoning, right? It has arisen. It's holding this like this, right? But it's only good because, you know, it's a process. I turn it on and it, you know, I can make phone calls and text and surf the internet and so forth. Your computer is a process. You have a processor in your computer, right? It makes it process. You're a process. I'm a process. Everything's a process. There's nothing but streams of dependently arising processes interacting. Now, the processes that make you who you are and the processes that make me who I am have some things in common, and we have some things that are individual. Like I'm speaking to you in English. That's because in the early 1500s, a bunch of Englishmen went to North America, ran off the Dutch, ran off the French, ran off the Spanish and suppressed the natives. And so the language they spoke is what's spoken in Northern North America where I grew up, right? So we share, the stream of the English language impacting on all of us. And it impacts us in ways that, well, if you grew up speaking another language, you might not have. When I first came to Buddhism, they talked about mudita. Well, that word didn't mean anything to me. And they told me, oh, that's sympathetic joy. I was like, that word doesn't mean anything to me either, right? The concept was completely foreign. It actually is better translated as appreciative joy. Appreciating joy, whether it's someone else experiencing the joy or yourself experiencing joy. Right? But we don't have a word for that in English. We have the opposite, envy, right? So, yeah, we don't have that concept. and We don't do a good job of experiencing that. They say that mudita may be the hardest of the four Brahmaviharas to learn, simply because it's inconceivable to a lot of people. Right? So, yeah, who you are is dependent on the language you speak. Now, I know that I have stuff that's different, that's made me who I am, that made you who you are. Like, 
None of you went to high school in Leland, Mississippi, like I did. I know it was a small school. I didn't see any of you guys there, right? I knew everybody. Okay, so your educational streams are different from my educational streams, right? So, yeah, and your family of origin and my family of origin are different. Uh, but, you know, we live on this planet. The, the fact that we arose because, well, this planet got formed and there was eventually evolution and it turned into humans and all of that stuff, right? Okay, so we have some streams we share and some that are separate. Our consciousness is a result of all these streams. For example, if I tell you that I was totally thrilled that the lionesses won the championship, you know, I thought that was fantastic. It's about time Britain was winning another soccer championship. Are they going to win the World Cup when that could? You're not all there thinking, what on earth is this guy going on about? I just changed all of your consciousnesses. Some of you were much more engaged because I'm talking about soccer. And others of you were like, right? But by speaking, I can talk about the Buddha and I'll give you one type of consciousness. I can talk about football and give you a different type of consciousness. Right? Your consciousness is dependent upon the streams of dependently arising processes impacting you through your senses. Right. And it was auditory coming at you right there. When I you know, held up the bird and the flowers, I changed your consciousness into investigating colored shapes. Right. So your consciousness, however you want to think of it, is a dependently originated process. It arises dependent on lots of other things that come to you through your senses. And remember, your memories are just part of your sixth sensory input. So when I ask you to remember the first teacher you had when you went to school, that memory is sixth sense input. And it changes your consciousness. I mean, maybe you liked her a lot and you, you have a nice feeling, or maybe she was a witch and you, you have an upset feeling, right? So consciousness is a dependently originated thing. It doesn't have independent existence. So if you get the fact that all there is is streams of dependently arising processes interacting, then the question doesn't occur to you, was I in the past? Will I be in the future? I have, I have another question that will illustrate this to you. If you fall off the edge of the world, does it hurt? I mean, come on, does it hurt? Do you land on something and it hurts if you fall off the edge of the world? Or you just keep falling? Do you fall faster and faster until the friction sets you on fire? That would hurt. Or do you fall, just keep falling and, and reach terminal velocity, but like starve to death or something? That would hurt. So if you fall off the edge of the world, does it hurt? Well, since you don't believe in the edge of the world, this question doesn't occur to you. It's a ridiculous question because you know there's no edge of the world, right? It just doesn't come up. 
If you understand dependent origination deeply enough, if you can view the world in terms of soda pie, the question of was I in the past or what will I be in the future or even who am I now doesn't arise. So the answer to Sati is, hey, you've made an entity out of your consciousness. You've misconceptualized what's going on. And because you have bhava tanha, your craving for future existence, you've made this mistake and you've completely missed the point of what the Buddha is trying to teach. If you get the general principle of dependent origination and can extrapolate it to, well, the entire universe, that everything arises dependent on other things, then the question of what was I in the past, what will I be in the future, doesn't arise because you realize there's nothing but streams of dependently arising processes interacting. That's it. So that's the first discourse in this sutta. There's a bridge between that discourse and the second one. It's kind of humorous. And it has nothing to do with what comes before. In fact, it contradicts it. It just suddenly switches and says, for a baby to be conceived, it requires three things. There's the union of mother and father. The mother must be in season and the Gandhava must be present. Okay, so you're wondering what's the Gandhava? It's a celestial musician. Although the commentaries in this one particular instant only translated as the being to be born. Okay, so the, the Indians at the time of the Buddha had figured out you don't get a baby if there's no union of mother and father. But sometimes you have the union of mother and father, but you still don't get a baby, especially if the mother is not in season, right? So you got to have union of mother and father at the right time, but you still sometimes don't get a baby. How come? Oh, you need a Gandhava, a celestial musician, or the being to be born. Now, the being to be born would contradict what came before, especially if you were considering it to be some form of consciousness. In the Abhidhamma, which was composed starting about 200 years after the Buddha, they talk about rebirth consciousness. But uh, I don't think the Buddha would be pleased if he were to read the Abhidhamma. Uh, yeah, I mean, if that contradicts what this sutta just was teaching. Once a child is born, then the child has sense desires and they get lost in their sense desires. The Buddha says that what's necessary not to get lost in the sense desires is, well, I mentioned the gradual training earlier, is to practice the gradual training, which is hear the Dharma, gain faith, start practicing the Dharma, keep the precepts, guard the senses, be mindful of all that you do, abandon the hindrances, uh, no, uh, be content with little, abandon the hindrances, practice the jhanas, 
and gain insight into the nature of the things that you have the sense desire about. If you do that, if you see their impermanent, unsatisfactory, empty nature, then you won't have the craving and clinging. Okay? So that's the second one. It's, it's a lot more detailed than that, but that's what the second one is. But it's about the ending of Kamatanha. So this sutta is quite important. It has a lot on dependent origination in it, but it's particularly important for this bit about monks. If you understand the world in terms of dependent origination, would you run back to the past or the future or about who you are or will be, or are you even perplexed about the present? So being able to shift your understanding of the world from a world of nouns to a world of streams of dependently arising processes is the path to liberation. It's the way to get out of the craving for future existence or even for sense pleasures. <laughs>